I'm going to read our sermon passage for this morning, and then we're going to hop into things. This comes from Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the fields, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people and they will say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're starting a new series, it's going to go for the next 12 Sundays, which will take us and butt us right up against Advent. This title of the series is A God Who Keeps His Promises, and what this will be is a 12-week study through the 12 minor prophets, also in the Hebrew Bible known as the Book of the Twelve. Now I will say this. They are not the minor prophets because they are less important or have a less important message. They are minor because they are smaller. You may be more familiar with the major prophets, and we'll get to that in just a second. But the heart of this series, one of the big reasons that we want to do this is we feel compelled, and we've preached about it some over the summer, is this idea that like, we constantly need to be attuning our mind and our thoughts as believers and followers of Jesus, that we have a prophetic voice to offer. Oftentimes we can uh, relegate the prophetic to just the super charismatic, the people that are receiving a divine word from the Lord off in a corner to come and proclaim. But there is something as a people and as a community and as followers of Jesus that we all collectively embody that is supposed to be a prophetic voice to point to, to make way for Jesus. And so we want to kind of spend some time in the prophets to think and to process and to allow ourselves to see and understand what it means to live. Because these prophets, they're, they're regular people in a lot of ways. They're not set apart in the same way that the priests are. The prophets we see in the Old Testament are people that come out from the people of God that give, are given this message, this voice, that are proclaiming God's goodness, His hope, His promises, who He is, His character. And so it kind of comes out of their everyday narrative. It comes out of their everyday life that they see this and they become so compelled that they begin to do really crazy things. And so we want to spend some time collectively saying, what does it mean to have a voice that speaks to the narrative that we live into? 
that offers something different than anxiety, that offers something different than disunity, that offers something different than fear and frustration or complacency or cynicism. But we think deep in the prophetic there is joy and there is peace and there is hope. And oftentimes the reality of it is, is that we miss that as believers. We're disconnected from peace and joy and unity and hope. And we can oftentimes find ourselves no different than the culture around us. So of course people look at the church and say, well, what's the point? They offer nothing in counter to what I'm already experiencing and living. And as I say all the time here on Sunday mornings, like brunch is more fun. I'm not saying it's better. But let's be honest, it's more fun. I don't know what your poison is, but I like a good Bloody Mary. Like, I'm just being honest, okay? It's an enjoyable experience. And if this is not offering something counter to the very thing in which we are all experiencing, then why bother? So we want to lean into that and press into this idea that there is a prophetic hope, proclamation that we as a people, as a church, here in Birmingham, Alabama, can offer to the watching world around us. Another theme that we want to tease out, and this is where our series title comes from, is this idea that God really is who he says he is. That he is good and that he is faithful. The driving impetus behind Psalm 145 being our call to worship this morning. These things are oftentimes connected and thought through. But we want to press this idea that he is good and he is a God who keeps his promises in the midst of tumult and turmoil. He's faithful, he's gracious, and he's true when we're on a search for truth and when we're on a search for the way and the path and the light. We believe that God is that for us. So we want to spend 12 weeks walking through these minor prophets thinking through them, processing what it is they have to say for us. So this is going to be really easy. There's 12 minor prophets. It's 12 weeks. It's really easy except for the weeks that we have to preach Habakkuk. If you want to get really into it, get deep into the guttural. If you've got a small cold, it's a good way to clear your throat. People don't think you have COVID. You all experience that societal pressure when you have to like sneeze in a grocery store or cough. And you're like, I swear, man, it's just like my mask. It got a little, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not sick. So we're going to go through these prophets and see what the message that they have. So just a little background because I find this really helpful to think through. You may not. If not, that's okay, but I'm going to go through it anyways. So the, the 12 minor prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, which the word for that is the Tanakh, is the Hebrew scriptures, which are the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. That is the law, the prophets, and the writings. So, you have these books, and in that, all of the books that we're going to study that are individual books in our English Bible are what is called the Book of the Twelve. So, they didn't have the printing press, right? So, if you listen to the Bible Project on their podcast, they no longer refer to the Old Testament books as books. They now call them the scrolls because that is the way they would have been handed out and passed around. And it's just like, you know, Semantics. When you have a PhD in Hebrew, you do these things. Uh, you create semantics. But they're helpful sometimes. Sometimes semantics matter. But think about it with the minor prophets. This literally would have been one scroll with 12 different prophetic stories in the scroll. 
So when they would have been worshiping and you had your Hebrew scriptures and you would come to temple to worship, we hear Jesus say this, and they handed me the scroll of Isaiah. And they would open up the scroll, and this is language we read, but it's quite literal. They would open up the scroll, roll it out, and they would read from it for their worship and their time together and to center around what it is that they're speaking and talking about. So the 12 that are a part of the prophets or the Nevi'im, they are one scroll. So quite literally, they are connected at the seams, like in the Hebrew scriptures. But there also are going to be connections in the seams as we're going through these. You'll see like there are these overlaps kind of as we move from book to book. At the beginning, at the end, you'll see repetition of ideas and phrases, repetitions of messages that the Lord is trying to speak to his people. And these are similar to what we would call the big three or the major prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. These are read together and it's helpful to see these. And so it's nothing wildly new, but it is something that there's an advantage to kind of seeing these all together as one. Now there's scholarly debates that we'll acknowledge for just a moment. And that is that some people think that maybe each individual book, like Hosea, Amos, Jonah, like I'll go through the 12, that each one was edited individually to be collectively in the 12. Some people think that they just took the 12 smaller ones and put them together for convenience so that they were more like easily located and, and you could find them. Our approach for this, as it is at Mosaic, if you've been around for a long time, where there is a oh, one or the other, we're going to say for the sake of this series and for what we're trying to accomplish, we are going to take them as given and say that they are 12 individual stories that are helpful to be read as one. And you're going to see themes that overlap, and you're going to see ideas that connect. And our overarching theme through all 12 is a God who keeps his promises. Now in the prophetic, there's all sorts of weird imagery, and there's talks of doomsday, and judgment, and suffering, and overthrow, and upheaval. And in that, it all serves a purpose. The prophets are retelling a story. They're recounting and recalling the journey of Israel. And oftentimes what they are doing is they are bringing to highlight or to the forefront Israel's covenant failure to God. And as a result of that failure, they're bringing forth and proclaiming God's judgment but in their judgment, we need to understand this, in their critique and in their calling out and in their naming of things, what we see is God's providing hope for Israel. Now, narratively, in this chronological order, they're providing hope beyond exile. What we see in Hosea is this promise that they will be exiled out of the kingdom. And in many of the prophets, you will see that they are told there's going to be exile, but there is always hope after exile, after God's judgment. God's judgment is his grace, and it is his mercy. His love is displayed in these. And sometimes that's a difficult thing for us to hold in tension. And we have to walk through that and process that. And it's not always easily understood in just a 35, 40-minute sermon. But we're going to process these things. And we're going to drill down to the idea that even in his judgment... God is gracious, faithful, and true. And that was Israel's promise. And he was good to deliver on those promises to Israel. And that is our promise today. 
And my life and I think your life reflects that he is good to deliver on those promises to us here and now in the 21st century as well. So we will start with Hosea, the first of the book of the 12. And that's where we're at today. It'll be kind of fun a couple years ago. This is just an aside. This worked out well. We did a series on First and Second Chronicles, which is where the Hebrew scriptures end. We did that in a fall, and then we ended with Advent. So it's kind of cool, like the end of the Hebrew scriptures. Now that we're doing uh, the book of the Twelve, our English Bibles end with Malachi. And so we're going to end with Malachi in the book of the Twelve and then start Advent. I think that's fun. If you don't think that's fun, you need to have a better sense of humor, I guess. We're starting Hosea. Hosea is a contemporary with Amos, which we'll be doing in two weeks. And now the book of the twelve aren't laid out perfectly in chronological order. As you can see, that's kind of a lot of these books will be happening around the same time. Some of these are debated. Some of them are more debated than others. Some of them are composed and compiled at a later date, but the prophet lived at a certain time. And so there is some order or structure. The first half of the book of the twelve, which is where our sermon exists, because that's the way math works comes before the fall of Israel. And when I say Israel, as we're going through the minor prophets, this is helpful to remember for the next 12 weeks. When you hear the prophets talking about Israel, they're talking about the northern kingdom. They're not talking about the whole of Israel. So the prophets exist in what is no longer the united kingdom of Israel or David. They exist in the divided kingdom. So Israel, they get to the promised land, they become a nation, they want their king, they get their king, and they last for three kings. And then after Solomon is king, his son takes over and the northern half of the country revolts and they split. And then for the rest of the Old Testament, until we return from exile and get into the New Testament, you are referring to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is Israel, also the kingdom of Samaria. Uh, in our prophecy in the book of Hosea, it is uh, oftentimes referenced as Ephraim. They're talking about the northern kingdom or Israel. The southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah. So when you're reading through the prophetic work and they're referencing Judah, they're referencing the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is where the capital that is like the capital of capitals, Jerusalem, sits. Um, Samaria is where the capital of the northern kingdom ends up. There's a few, it moves around some as these things do. But... So there's a difference between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom falls first. If you read through the scriptures, the northern kingdom never really gets it right. They experience some prosperity, which is in the era we're in now. But the synchronism and the, the, the mixing of worship between religions and the people around them and the cultural kind of melding is always present. The injustice, which is what God seems to care about more than anything in the prophets in the way they treat the poor, the sojourner, the marginalized is never, like, like that is always prevalent. Injustice is always prevalent in the northern kingdom. Southern kingdom gets some stuff right. But the first half of the book is going to be before the northern kingdom is exiled because they get exiled first. In the second half, you get some where the southern kingdom's exiled and then finally you get some of the prophetic work. The last few will be while they're actually in exile and post-exile. If you want to sound really fancy, it's called post-exilic. There's fun theological words that you can throw out that make you seem smarter than you actually are, which is a lot of what being smart is, right? Just using big words. So, we're in Hosea, in the first half. He's a contemporary with Amos. He's heavily concerned with the covenant breaking that is prevalent in the people of God. 
which is what most of the first half of the book is concerned with, or the first half of the book of the 12 is concerned with, is this covenant breaking with the people of God. So in Hosea, you will see this frequent use of the term Yahweh. In your English translations, where it is big L, capital L, a little bit bigger, capital O-R-D, but like a tiny bit smaller, when it is written like that in English, it is always the term for Yahweh, and that matters because when they're using that, Yahweh is the covenant name for God, for the people of Israel. And so Hosea is going to constantly use Lord that you would read in your English translation, or Yahweh, because he's driving home that it is this covenant relationship that we, the people of God, are supposed to have with the creator of the universe. And so he's going to use that again and again because he's highlighting that they have broken the covenant with a God that intended to be in covenant with them. This is revolutionary in this time and space. In the ancient Near East, no God wanted to be in covenant with his people. He wanted to rule and reign over his people solely or her people, different gods, different spaces. But a God that longed to be in relationship with his people was revolutionary, very countercultural, and to this day stands as one of the unique things of the Abrahamic religion, is that they would have a God that cares and like wants to be personal with his followers. And so Hosea uses it again and again to remind us that it is a God who loves that they have rejected that it is a God that chose them, their, these people, this group, for himself, and they have walked away from him. And that the rejection and the covenant breaking has first come from the people, not from God. And he will highlight again and again that God's covenant and his promise was that he would bring them out of a land and make them his. And he's going to come back to this again and again. So here's the context for our passage 15 minutes in. It was Hosea's task to explore what it meant for Israel to break a covenant. This covenant of Israel with God goes back as far as Adam. To the very beginning, there was a, a relationship with God and humanity. God always intended to be near to his people and his creation. It's one of the things that draws me to Christianity. One of the first things I was just like, this is a thing that compels me, that you always see this, that God intends on using his people and meeting them in their context and in their place, in their language, in their customs, in their routines, and he takes them up and he says, I will meet you there, where you are. I will not force you to come to me. I will meet you where you are. I will condescend to you, and I will make for you a place and a way to be in relationship with me, going all the way back to Adam. And so Hosea is standing and saying, this has always been God, and this is always supposed to be our relationship with him, and you have continually failed, and you have broken this covenant. So what does Hosea do? Hosea's first word is a command to go and marry an unfaithful woman, to put it kindly. This is his call as a prophet. Now, this is something that the prophets do. The prophets are oftentimes embodying the message of God before they deliver the message of God. We would do well to take heed to the same call. First and foremost, we are to embody, to be, to exist in what God would intend us to be or exist into before we are to act. That is the indicative, is to proceed the imperative. 
our existence, our being, who we are, what we are named is first and foremost, and then our actions. And the prophets do this. They embody God's message. They become what God would intend them to become. Unfortunately for Hosea, it is probably the worst embodiment or call that any of the prophets received. One of the most difficult. He's called to go and to marry a whore and get a children with a whore for the country itself has become nothing but a whore. That's the way one English translation gives us this. So, Hosea takes this on. He becomes what his message is, and he marries Gomer. And there are some debates. Was she a prostitute before they got married? Was she actually a prostitute, or was she just a promiscuous woman? There's always debates on these things. I think what the text would seem to make clear is that she probably was already uh, in this sexual sin, if you want to call it that. And that he goes and his attempt is to love her despite the fact that he knows who she is. So he goes, he marries her. And this is a scandalous thing. And we want to let that sit because this is the realities. I think too often we make the call of the gospel really clean in our response to it. And oftentimes it is very scandalous and messy and it's not as clear cut and black and white as we want it to be. And it's really easy for us in our piety and our hubris to sit back and to judge and to make proclamations over others because we think our life looks really clean and perfect. I could only imagine what Twitter would do to someone that would do this in today's day and age, right? I'm not saying anyone should, but could you like, just imagine with me? It could be judgment and critique. But I think that the, oftentimes what we find through Scripture is that it's never as clean or pretty or perfect as we oftentimes think it should be or want it to be. There's scandal again and again in the story of God and his relationship to his people. And the most scandalous thing is that he, God, would want to be in relationship with us. So, of course, the response and the interactions are scandalous. The very notion of the gospel is scandalous. And we would do well to not try to tame it or to pare it back, but to let the scandal be what it is. Let it be wild and adventurous and big. And to swim in that bigness and the wildness of the story and to let it compel us to be something more than what we think this small view and picture of God is that we oftentimes hold on to. So after he marries Gomer, they begin to have children. The first child they have is named Jezreel. And his name is Jezreel because God declares that I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. To just add a, a side note here, this would be like today naming your child Hiroshima. Like this is a very scandalous thing for them to do. It is an gr almost grotesque thing to do. To name your child this. It's not something that would have been received well. And they have a second child, and the scandal continues because we don't even know if this is Hosea's child or not. The second child will be named Lo-Ruh-Amaha, meaning not loved. Such a name would imply not only Gomer's infidelity, but the infidelity of Israel as well. 
And it publicizes God's grave displeasure with his very own people, saying to them that the result of your actions, the result of your idolatry and your promiscuity with other gods is turning you into a people that cannot even be loved. The third child that is born is lo ami, or not my people. Adding emphatically, for you are not my people, in chapter 1, verse 8, and I am not your God. Normally, names in the Hebraic culture would have uh, given us hopes, ideas for what the child could be or become. Names were like sort of a parental expectation on their kids. Hosea's name itself is a name that means salvation or a ver- like a, a variant of that comes from Joshua or Yeshua, which is in Greek translated as Jesus. Hosea's name was powerful, and so were these. What we see in the names of Hosea and his children is we see that, lot, that there is a terrible estrangement between Israel and Yahweh, and that their breaking of the covenant was just like Hosea's wife. And as such, their lineage and their future is that of her lineage and of her future. The people of Israel, if they continue to act in this way, if they continue to follow along, not loving, not being in covenant with God, then they will be punished and cut off, not loved, and not a part of Yahweh's own. But here's the thing. In all of the prophets and in Hosea itself, the verdict is always followed with a promise. For you are not my people, and I am not your God, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. G.K. Chesterton wrote in Orthodoxy that love is not blind. That is the last thing that it is. But love is bound. And the more that it is bound, the less that it is blind. And I think we see this playing out with Yahweh and his people. He is not walking away from his love for his people by acknowledging the truth of where they are. He is not blind to the infidelity and to the breaking of the covenant that they have committed. He's honest about it. He names it. But always in scripture, in a covenant God like Yahweh, what we see is in his naming and his judging and his speaking of the truth and telling of what actually is, his love grows deeper in that moment. His grace is more sure. His faithfulness is more tangible when he begins to name their sins because he is not walking away from them or hiding from it. He is not scared of it. Instead, he says, I will love you in spite of it. But it is without, not without consequence. There's always consequence for the people, but the consequence is so that they will receive and find themselves again in the love of God. Hosea promised that the Lord would reverse the disaster of the past. In our passage we read about the valley of Achor made famous by Achan's sin and Joshua. He stole idols. He hid them. And it brought judgment on the people. And what 
Hosea is saying is even in somewhere as terrible as that, not will it be a mark of sin, but it will be a door of hope. The valley will be a way for those to come and know God. The judgment is given. He promises that he will take their promiscuity and he will end it. Where it says that you will not be my, or that you will no longer call me my master. The Hebrew word there is Baal, or thou, gods. I will not be your Baal. I will be your husband. I will love you in a different kind of way, an intimate kind of way. There will be a connection and a relationship. I'm not like those other gods that you are worshiping and following after. I will not disappoint you in those kind of ways. I will not rule and reign over you. Instead, I will be in deep relationship with you. I will know you and you will know me. And I will be your people, or I will be your God and you will be my people. And the images and the names and the passions for those old gods, when you are overwhelmed by me, they won't even exist anymore. You won't even be able to call them to mind. He's promising that he'll wipe them clean. And the people of Israel will become single-minded and focused on who God is because his promises will be too true for them to ignore. This is who God is. A God who keeps his promises. Gracious, faithful, and true. And so in Hosea's love for his wife, we see illustrated Yahweh's covenant love for Israel. Hosea prophesied with hope and certainty that Israel would return to Yahweh. And then the rest of the book, what we see is chapters 4 through 11, if you care about these things, is a poetry section that is God's judgment on Israel. It's, it's the scene, or, or calls to mind, a divorce court. It's a legal scene that we see where God is bringing the people before a court and a judge and saying, you have broken the covenant. You have failed to uphold your end of the deal. And you need to be judged rightly for it. And you need to be named for it. You need to understand the problems that you have and where we sit. So they are brought forth with accusations and warnings that they do not know God. The husband-wife imagery continues here. Because there, when it's talking about knowing God, the Hebrew word for that is yada. To give you a sense of what that word means, to know someone, Adam yadah's Eve and has children. It's to know intimately, to know in a way that only people that are that intimate and vulnerable with one another can know each other. God longs and desires to know you that intimately, that individually, that personally. He longs to be with his people in that kind of way. And he's saying, you do not know me, but I long to know you. And you can know me. And the promise we're given in chapter 11 is that of a father and a son being restored. Chapters 12, 14 are, is more poetry telling of the ways that the people have been failed. And he acknowledges that it's kind of always been this way with the people of God. They've always been unfaithful. And yet, Yahweh has always been faithful despite their unfaithfulness. Both of these sections end with hope for the future of relationship, of intimacy, and covenant and faithful love. The evidence of the accusations leveled against the people of God of Israel is seen in their syncretism, their worship, and their mix of different idols and gods. And here's the reality. 
We, we may sit here and think that what does idol worship and Baal and all of this have to do with us? Well, there's a lot more in common with the American church than with, in 8th century Judaism than we probably care to admit. For we, just like them, can rejoice and worship and follow along in the rituals of Christian life. Rejoice in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And yet, simultaneously, we can worship and idolize success and wealth. We can seek the nuclear family above all else. Above our church, above those on the outside. Pleasure from emotional things that we deem more important than sacrificial living towards those that we come in contact with. We accept cultural norms instead of living a countercultural life that has more to do with the way of following Jesus. We easily blend worship with entertainment and feel-good messages and patriotism with following Jesus. We treat Jesus like he's some small part of our life, a silo to be filled, part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where we can pick and choose as long as we have enough to kind of hold everything up, then we're good. Instead of allowing the call of Jesus to be the very lens by which we see the entire world and live and breathe and have our being, we are not all that different than 8th century Judaism. And the call from God is the same, that he wants to know us, and he wants us to know him. He longs for us to come and to be in an intimate relationship with him, to walk alongside us, to carry us. Another language in Hosea, God tells the people of Israel that he longs to be their helper. The same language for Adam when he receives Eve, this is to be your helpmate, your sustainer, the one that will give you life and carry you through when you can't carry yourself. Far beyond a woman in the kitchen just making your meals and cleaning your bed, okay? It is to be your life mate, your partner, and this is what God longs to be for his people. And so he says, I promise that I will do this. I will join you in the difficulty. I will join you in the pain. I will join you in the suffering. Because I love you. And though I know you will not always be faithful to me, I promise to you that I will always be faithful to you. And we have this promise that we can hold on to because we see it played out in Jesus. All of this is pointing to what Jesus will do. We, standing on the other side of resurrection, know that God is good. And hear me out on this. I was in a conversation last week with someone over coffee. And we were talking about it, and they were lamenting the difficult state they find themselves in. And this desire to see the goodness of the Lord. And they made this statement where they said, I know. And I'm not, if you've made, the, I have made this statement before too, but I'm not judging anyone here. They made this statement, they said, I know that even if the Lord never did anything again for me, what Jesus did on the cross was enough. I said, though that sounds like sage wisdom, it does not seem biblical to me. Because what we see in Scripture is that what Jesus did on the cross is just the beginning of what he longs to invite us into. If this is true, if God longs to be in this intimate, divine relationship with us, 
You would mock me if I told you what I did eight years ago in marrying Anna was enough and that she should just be grateful that we're married. That would be ludicrous to you and you would call me a terrible husband as you should. What I would like to think is that after 18 years, 38, 58 years, that the love that we share for one another would only grow deeper and deeper and that it would be bigger and truer than what it was when we first got married. And that is what Jesus longs to do with you. The cross was the beginning. It was an invitation into a life that was supposed to be abundant and joyful. And your life is supposed to change when you encounter that. You're supposed to be caught up into it. You're supposed to feel peace when there's no peace available. You're supposed to feel hope when all is dark and lost because he is with you and he is next to you. And this is what the story of Hosea is telling us. That despite our failures, despite our shortcomings, despite all the things that we have done wrong, there are consequences and we've lived those and you've experienced them, I've experienced them. I know the consequences of stepping out from what the Lord would have for me. But it never changes the fact that he is faithful, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And as we participate in that, we share that story with each other and one another, and we proclaim again and again the resurrection of Jesus amongst ourselves, the forgiveness of sins and the life and the life abundant that is intended for now and forevermore. So as the band comes up, we're going to partake in communion. Another image of intimacy that we see in scripture between God and us is in Revelation 19. The consummation of the narrative arc before we arrive to the holy city and as we arrive into the holy city is a wedding feast between God and his people. And this is what I would say. I think for many of us we experience this deep shame as individuals we long to know that Christ could love us individually. For others of us, I think we may think, yes, we understand that the people of God are quite wayward. I'm going to quote Dorothy Day here. She says, as to the church, where else shall we go except to the bride of Christ? One flesh with Christ? Though she is a harlot, she is our mother. And we see that though our wayward leanings that God intended for the church to be his bride, for his people to be the ones that he would bring into relationship and share intimacy with. And we see that fully realized and consummated at the end of scripture in Revelation 19 when the people of God meet once again to celebrate the feast with Jesus. And so each Sunday as we celebrate communion in some small way we're celebrating what that day will be like. We're being reminded that this is true now and that we're hoping to see that reality here in Birmingham as it will be in heaven. So we come and we partake of the bread and the cup to be reminded and to stand fast and to stand true in God's graciousness, faithfulness, and truth. So as the band plays, come, take a piece of bread and a cup. Go back to your seats and hold on to the elements and together as a community we will partake in one body and one cup to be reminded of God's forgiveness and his love and his mercy for us. Father, we ask and we pray in this moment that you would be with us and be present.
that as we come to your table, that we would be nourished and sustained on your goodness and your mercy, that we would be reminded of your love and your compassion that you have for us. May we be overwhelmed with your desire to know us, and may we be just yeah, enamored with the ability to know you more and more. And may we know you more this morning, God. May we fall intimately and deeply and wildly in love with you in a way that allows us to see the world anew and aright. Take us and turn us right side up, Father, as we come and we partake in the body and the blood. In Jesus' name, amen.